0: It's interesting to also witness where the emotions or the experiences of jealousy and compersion are coming from, because oftentimes people might have a mental or attitudinal experience of compersion. They're, you know, supportive of their partners that their relationships intellectually, but they might still have something in their gut that says, no, this is not right. My partner is going to leave me. I'm being abandoned. And it's an art to, you know, bridge the two and to decide like okay what do I do when I have these two concurrent experiences and maybe two different parts of me are saying different things.
1: On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about some brand new compersion research with Drs. Marie Tuen and Sharon M. Flicker. So first, Marie Tuen is the founder of Love Insight, a mindful dating and relationship coaching practice where she helps people of all backgrounds and relationship styles create vibrant and intentional love lives and she is also a leading scholar and researcher on the topic of compersion in consensually non-monogamous relationships. And Dr. Sharon M. Flicker is a clinical psychologist who researches intimate relationships, most recently focusing on consensual non-monogamy and love languages. She's an assistant professor of psychology at California State University, Sacramento, and she serves as the co-lead of the Inclusive Education Initiative of the American Psychological Association's Division 44 Committee on Consensual Non-Monogamy. That's a real mouthful, but is a cool thing that we've talked about a little bit before on yeah, this the show. Yeah, the fighting 44th. Yeah, that we actually have an inclusion committee for non-monogamy in the APA yeah. now, which is very cool. So, yeah. Marie and Sharon, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having us. It's good to be back. Yeah, so we initially had Marie on the podcast back in episode 285. So let's start with you, Marie. Can you give a recap to our listeners a little bit about what drew you to compersion research in the first place?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when I was last on the podcast, I had almost finished, but I hadn't totally completed my dissertation uh, research on compersion for my Ph.D., And what really drew me to that concept is first, it felt like it meant so much about love, about a kind of love that's not possessive, that's not about control, but that is really about wanting the best for somebody else and deriving joy from that. And me being from a more non-traditional family structure and also relationship structure, it felt like the the concept that I wanted to center on in terms of building a new paradigm for my life. And there was really no or very little existing research on that topic. So there was this huge opportunity to go into this territory that could really impact how we see relationship satisfaction in CNM and consensual non-monogamous relationships.
2: And so since then, since you were on the show, you have published your research. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, and it's available for it free. To great fanfare and, yeah. and lots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's super
0: cool because now people can go download it, you know, for free. It's not behind a paywall. It's open access. They can just go to whatiscompersion.com and download it. And it has a lot of practical um, practical benefits to anyone who's in a consensually non-monogamous relationship and wants to, to have some of those insights. It's really
2: easy to assimilate. And so let's switch focus to Sharon. So first of all, maybe you can connect the dots for us of how the two of you got connected. And Sharon, if you can also share, maybe it's related to how, the story of how you also got involved in this particular research.
4: Mm-hmm. I don't actually remember how Marine and I got connected, except that I knew that she was also doing comparison research. I, mean, I had been doing comparison research with Dr. Michelle Vaughn separately. And so when I wanted someone to kind of step in and play a role in our one of our projects, I immediately thought of Marie because she was a clear expert in the area of comparison, like really good fits. In terms of how I got involved, you know, I've been teaching psychology for almost 20 years at universities. And I've taught a few psychology of relationships courses. And of course, there's like nothing about consensual non-monogamy in the psych of relationships textbooks. And actually how I originally got started is that one of my students, this is back in 2017, I think, asked me if if I would mind if she did a presentation on the research about consensual non-monogamy, just volunteering And I thought, that's great. That's amazing. And turned out that there wasn't all that much at that time. So that's how we got started. I said, hey, do you want to start doing some research in this? And so we did some research about one of the first studies was about hierarchy and how that relates to relationship satisfaction and attachment in polyamorous relationships. And then moved into conversion. Conversion is super interesting just because it's so different from what monogamous folks think is possible, right? It's like the opposite of what's expected in our culture. So I thought that was a really interesting place to study.
0: Mm-hmm. And if I can add something to that last point that Sharon made, I think the other reason why eventually I understood why compersion was so powerful is that it kind of really has what it takes to dismantle mononormativity. Because the idea that monogamy is the only possible way to have a good relationship is based on The idea that jealousy is inevitable and it's the only possible reaction to a partner having other partners.
3: And also through your work, Sharon, you developed a scale for measuring compersion. We talked about that just briefly before we started recording the episode, but can you go into that a little bit more? Because that's really fascinating.
4: Sure. This was a project that Dr. Michelle Vaughn and I took on and we started with a, a grounded kind of understanding of people's lived experience of compersion. So doing some qualitative research about what it feels like, what it looks like in their relationships. And skipping to the end, essentially we came up with an 11 item scale of compersion. There's three subscales. So the, the data seemed to indicate that there's three subtypes of compersion in our in our study. The quantitative part indicated that there is a, a type of compersion about your partner's relationships with established metamors, and then there's a type of compersion that's related to kind of new or potential intimate connections for your partner. And then the third piece is a sexual arousal piece. And it's not that that everyone experiences all three types of compersion, but that all three types of compersion exist, and they're kind of distinct from each other.
3: I love that you made that differentiation because, yeah, so many people discuss the fact that you know, when you're in the midst of NRE, a partner may be feeling really intense emotions during that time, and one might assume that conversion is more difficult to have during that time. And then also, yeah, I mean, in some sexual situations, some people love watching their partner have sex with someone else, and so that may include conversion there as well. That's really cool, and I love that you broke it down in that fashion.
2: Yeah. So I feel like we might need to back up a little bit and maybe even start with some definitions. And some of this is a little bit jumping ahead. So Sharon, you just identified sort of like these three different flavors. And Marie, you've touched on kind of some of the different emotional components of this. And then again, as spoilers in the study, it looks like you identified some kind of five common themes that arose when participants talked about their experience of it. And so let's hear from the two of you about how you would define compersion. I think within non-monogamy circles, it usually has this very pat definition of just like, oh, it's the opposite of jealousy. Or it's just like, oh, you like it when your partner is dating other people. But it sounds like you've been able to uncover more of the moving pieces of this. And so being on the other side of that, how would you define compersion?
0: Well, I can start. I actually came up in my dissertation study with two definitions because I think it's important to, to have two. One that's just kind of a general definition of what is empathic joy, like empathic joy for, you know, when we witness or when we are aware of somebody else experiencing gratifying emotions. So it can include thoughts, feelings, you know, emotions, experiences. And then the second definition, which is relevant to what we're talking about here, is in a non-monogamous context, the joy and the positive emotions that we experience when our partner experiences joy and positive emotions in the context of another relationship.
1: Yeah, it makes sense to to make that distinction, or to have those two different definitions, because that is something I found that comes up when we talk about it, is that generally compersion is used specifically for that, you know, feeling happy about Your partner's other relationships or their sexual encounters or whatever. But then, usually, when we talk about it, we, to to try to make it more understandable, we talk about it in the context of, you know, feeling happy when your friend gets a promotion, even if there's like a little bit of jealousy in there of like, I wish I had a promotion Mm -hmm. too, but I'm also happy for them. And kind of to, we use that as sort of a bridge to help people understand. So that's that's interesting to have those two definitions of compersion, almost to show that to kind of make it more understandable and, and relatable.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact is we don't have another word in the English language to refer to to the general compersion, the more you know, mm-hmm. like non non romantic type of compersion. So, I think it would be totally fine to use that word as well.
1: Yeah. That's yeah. Is great. there
0: anything, Sharon, that you would add to that definition?
4: Yeah. It, so the in the first study, we, we did some thematic analysis of people's emotions, what, what conversion feels like emotionally. And it was obviously, it ran the gamut of positive emotions. Some of them was more like joy, kind of second one was more of a lower intensity emotion, like contentment, warmth. And then there were things like excitement, both emotional and sexual. And then there were things like pride, love, validation people used a lot of like my heart exploding a lot of words that referred to like their heart a sensation in their heart specifically
1: Hmm.
2: yeah I like that I really like it. I think what's so great about being able to do more qualitative studies is you get all that really nice juicy language as well that really expands your understanding of what of what something is well, so let's dive into, you know, specifically the study that, that the two of you and Dr. Michelle Vaughn published together. So can you just kind of set the scene for our listeners of, of the basics of your method? What was the hypothesis? What was your approach? Who was it that you were talking to? Like, what was the shape of this whole study?
4: Yeah, so we we didn't start with any hypotheses. It was a qualitative study. So we were just trying to follow our participants' responses and identify themes in their responses. We recruited from from Reddit, specifically the polyamory subreddit. There were 44 participants. Three quarters of them were from the U.S. and the others were from like Europe, Australia, places like that. Folks were on average, like the average age was about 32. And there's a really wide range of engagement in CNN from like one year to 32 years. So on average folks were engaged about seven years in CNN. And they all had to have been in a CNM relationship in the last year, as well as had experience with compersion. And actually, I also point out, because I remember this, you were talking about this in a former episode, which I was really glad to hear, is that there were, it was somewhat of a biased sample in that the majority were white, the majority were cis women, right? A lot of them were, the vast majority were bisexual or pansexual identified and, and college educated so that it was a particular sample, probably from recruiting from the polyamory subreddit.
2: I was just excited to hear that the average age was 32 because I feel like usually it's like just all the undergrads and they're yeah. like, oh, yeah, average age was like 22 or something like that. And not that you can't have any compersion experience at 22, but it's still at least nice to to see that you broke out of just just harvesting from the undergrad pool. <laughs> right. Okay, so so from that sample, then you sat down and did just qualitative interviews with people of just asking about their experiences of compersion. And so your study is specifically looking at what helps facilitate this experience and also what hinders this experience based on people's reporting. And so, I mean, what were kind of the general themes that you found? Okay, I can take the lead on that.
4: Yeah, so it, it actually we did surveys rather than interviews. So folks were able to write out their responses. That had that was good in that a lot of times you can reach folks who you can't reach through interviews. But on the other hand, sometimes we couldn't get a full understanding of what they were trying to convey all the time. Um, but the, the, the main themes, they were kind of individual or intrapersonal level themes. There were relationship level factors and then there was metamorph specific factors. So the individual factors, I won't go through all of them, but a lot of them were like, I, I have a strong sense of self-worth at the time. When I, when I have a strong sense of self-worth, I'm more likely to experience compersion. When my mental health is in check, I'm more likely to experience compersion. When I have a full life outside of my partner, you know, social mm-hmm. support or maybe other partners. And then in terms of the relationship, people talked about having good communication with their partner, whether that was about jealousy in particular, whether that was about, you know, negotiating time with their partner or getting their needs met from their partner or the, learning the details of the partner's relationship with the metamorph was also mentioned many times as important to compersion. Oh, as
2: um, important he, as like that helps support developing compersion, like getting more details about the relationship?
4: Yeah, a lot of people wrote that it would be really difficult for them to experience conversion if they didn't know the details. And so, you know, for some folks, just like witnessing the joy of their partner's face as they talk about their metaphor, right? Or they talked about a hot date they had, or a new person they met that they were excited about. That it was difficult. That it, I guess it's facilitated conversion by being able to share in that emotion, either because you're you're seeing it in your partner, or maybe you're mirroring their exact emotions. That and that way, it was helpful for conversion. Okay, that makes sense. Participants also talked a lot about feeling valued by their partner and secure in their relationship and really feeling like their their needs were met. And those folks who talked about what those needs were talked a lot about time and attention. So knowing the next time that they were going to have you know time to spend with their partner, like knowing when that would be um, feeling attended to by their partner and important to their partner was important for them to experience compersion. And then finally, the last factor was how they felt about their metamor. And, you know, as you might expect, having positive regard for their metamor was important to compersion. Knowing or thinking that their partner was a good, you know, was trustworthy, was good for their partner, that they had a healthy relationship with the partner. That was all really important for compersion.
1: Yeah, we just a few weeks ago, we did a couple episodes about non-monogamy research. And one of the things that came up in one of those was specifically showing... Communication skills, as well as knowing your metamor, did help to increase relationship satisfaction in non-monogamous relationships. So that's good that that tracks and that that's consistent. It's like okay, yeah, there's something here. I wanted to go back to something that you said, which was about them being able to relate to the feelings that their partner is having. You know, if they're experiencing something similar in their own life, you know, in their other relationships or something. Uh, And I wanted to come back to that because I think that's something that also people get stuck on is this idea of, well, everything's fine as long as both of us are dating other people roughly the same amount. But if there's an imbalance there, then we have conflict and then it's it's harder. And so it's interesting that you you found that kind of from the other side of saying, oh, if we're having similar experiences, that makes it a little easier. But it did kind of bring that up of, mm, but that's also such a tough thing to kind of say, oh, well, we have to try to stay in sync. Because that's, yeah. you know, a hard thing to to force, right? It's a hard thing to make that happen.
4: Yeah, you know, this is something that I think isn't talked about as much in consensual non-monogamous communities and actually was brought up by one of the reviewers of my paper that people don't talk enough about envy, right? We talk a lot about mm. jealousy. But the idea that ugh, my partner, you know, has such an easier time meeting other partners or, mm-hmm. you know, has such a good quality of relationship with this other partner. I wish that I had that or the feeling of, well, I don't have any other partners, but my partner does. And it's not about jealousy in terms of feeling a threat to your relationship. It's about wishing that you had something that your partner had, right?
2: Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. That That's actually a good indication for a future episode for us to talk about that envy piece of it, because it is so easy to go down just that jealousy Jealousy. route or just thinking about, oh, what is it that you're not getting from your partner in particular? But yeah, you're so right. It's so common. It comes up in our, you know, in our Patreon community all the time with the clients that I work with all the time that there is this particular nuance of I can feel really supportive of my partner and feel secure in the relationship and also just wish I had the same thing that they had. Yeah, absolutely. It's I think is one of my research study ideas for the future that I definitely want to pursue. OK, well, that'll maybe maybe once that's done, then we'll make an episode about it. And we'll have you back on. It'll all work like clockwork. Perfect.
3: <laughs> so something I wanted to go back to was you talked about communication and how that sort of facilitated and And allowed for compersion to occur within relationships when you had a lot of communication about what was going on in a relationship or what was going on with a metamor. But I am curious, just I, I would be interested to know what type of polyamory people who felt that practiced, because if it was more sort of a kitchen table polyamory or where everyone was more aware of one another rather than, you know, maybe a don't ask, don't tell situation or even a parallel polyamory situation where Part of the point is to not necessarily have as much communication. I do wonder, and, and our researcher also had asked that question, is this something that would work? Like, would compersion be as prevalent among Amongst people who practice more parallel polyamory,
4: well, I don't think that we can tell that from this data. I think this mm-hmm. data, they, you know, there were some. There was at least one person who was in, not interested in knowing their metamor at all oh. and still reported feelings of compersion. Awesome. Although most people were interested, and I, I, it's kind of a maybe a little sneak peek of my next study that the most important factors for compersion, the ones that were most predictive. Was feeling close to your metamorph and having being satisfied, having knowledge about your partner metamorph relationship. Those were the strongest predictors of two of the subtypes of conversion, or th- actually all three com- subtypes of conversion.
3: I would be really interested if this study also included at some point people just in non monogamy in general and questioning where conversion happened and if those findings would be the same. Like, I have a very strong relationship with my metamor and there, therefore I am also able to feel compersion for them and for my partner. Things like that versus people who maybe don't know or don't want to know their metamor that well. That's really interesting.
4: Yeah, I think that's a great question because the sample is primarily polyamorous. so it's, And there are different types of polyamory, but exactly. we didn't actually yeah. ask about that question. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that would be really interesting though, because I I guess from that you can hypothesize or extrapolate that when you don't necessarily have those factors of not feeling super close to my metamor, or I don't necessarily have knowledge about my partner and metamor's relationship, I wonder if it's, I don't have that knowledge by choice because that's how I want it to be, or I I don't have that knowledge not by choice necessarily. Like that, I mean, I feel like you're... you know, really, really doing a fine-tooth comb of trying to find the sample size. That's like the people who maybe are practicing parallel polyamory or don't ask, don't tell, but who also have had experiences of compersion. I'm like, what? what's going on there? Like so many questions.
4: Yeah. And I think just to, to add onto that, it's really unclear what comes first. So do feelings of compersion facilitate people feeling close to their metamor and wanting to know more about it? Or are the closeness and the knowledge coming before the compersion? And my guess is, I don't know what comes first, but I'm, I'm, I feel pretty confident that they feed upon each other.
0: You know, compersion is a form of empathy. So, of course, empathy needs proximity. It needs feeling kind of included in somebody else's experience, like not necessarily being there while they're having an experience. But, you know, I think we need to have a window into someone experience, someone's experience and we cannot be feeling like the other person is shutting us out. Oftentimes yeah. when I talk to people who don't experience compersion, who struggle with it, who experience a lot of jealousy and who who struggle, generally speaking, they feel shut out from their partner's experience. They feel like they can't have a window. They can't feel connected at that level. They feel like there's perhaps an element of secrecy or fear yeah. and concealment. So, think that's kind of a useful distinction to make you know compersion is about feeling included and the lack of compersion is oftentimes about feeling excluded
1: yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense and i'm also thinking about that analogy that i gave before about a friend who gets a promotion that if all i hear is one day oh my friend got this promotion and now they're making you know twice as much money and i'm like ah that's going to trigger a lot more envy and less good feelings. Whereas if I knew that this is something they'd been working really hard for, and I'd kind of been in on that journey, I I could see feeling a lot more of that. Oh, that's awesome. Like you got it. Cause I've been included in this journey, even though I wasn't doing it, I don't work with you. I'm not there, but I, I, that makes a lot of sense. I'm always trying to look for those analogies of where's some other area of our life where this seems less of a foreign concept. And then to see how, oh yeah, that there's a similarity there that that could could track. So that's, that's a cool example. And I think it's an interesting thing to point out too, because a lot of people starting out in non-monogamy have, you know, there's a lot of fear of the reaction of your partner. And so you can tend to not include them very much out of not wanting to hurt them or upset them. Like it's coming from a good place, but maybe you're also kind of blocking the development of that compersion.
0: Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. I see that all the time in my coaching practice, actually, like people who, who they're like, yeah, I don't want to tell my partner, like they don't, I don't want to hurt them, but their partner feels then like they don't have access to what's happening and they feel more threatened as a result.
1: Hmm. Yeah. We love getting to hear about all of this new research that's coming out and getting to actually talk to you about the process and getting all these sneak previews is is really awesome. And before we go on to the second half of this episode, we're going to take a quick break to talk about some of our sponsors and ways that you can support this show at home. If you find this content valuable and you want more people to be able to access it for free, taking the time to check out our sponsors and if any seem interesting to you to go check them out, that directly helps our show and we really appreciate it.
3: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All
2: right, folks, we are back. We are here with Dr. Marie Tula and Dr. Sharon Flicker talking about compersion research. So let's talk about the relationship between jealousy and compersion. Now, earlier in the show, I mentioned that often the way it's defined is as the opposite of jealousy. But then Sharon, you mentioned in passing that you don't agree with that. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think
4: the main reason I don't agree with it is the the many participants in our study who talked about feeling jealousy and compersion at the same time. And so, you know, people can experience jealousy and compersion at the same time. I would imagine that central to that is the ability to manage their feelings of jealousy and so that the feelings of jealousy aren't overwhelming. But there are folks for whom they can kind of translate jealousy into maybe something erotic that could more easily mm. be translated directly into compersion, a type of compersion. And I think, Marie, you've, you, you've had thoughts about this before. Do you want mm. to add to that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that it's interesting to also witness where the emotions or the experiences of jealousy and compersion are coming from, because often oftentimes people might have a mental or attitudinal experience of compersion. They're, you know, supportive of their partners that their relationships intellectually, but they might still have something in their gut that says, no, this is not right. My partner is going to leave me. I'm being abandoned. And it's an art to, you know, bridge the two and to decide like, okay, what do I do when I have these two concurrent experiences and maybe two different parts of me are saying different things.
3: That just made me think, like, is compersion, and, and there not that there's a right or wrong answer here, but is compersion real if it isn't felt innately, like, internally, if it's only felt in the brain or in the, you know, psyche of, yeah, I should feel this way, or I do objectively feel happy for my partner, but, like, what equals compersion? Does it have to be really internal and emotional?
0: No, mm, that's such a great question. Well, I mean, in my dissertation research, what I found is that people had different definitions of compersion. Some of them defined compersion as this more cognitive, attitudinal orientation towards their partners or are relationships. They just said like, compersion for me is just feeling like this is a good thing that's happening instead of feeling like it's a bad thing. And then other people describe compersion as this embodied feeling, almost like an intoxication of like, oh my gosh, like my heart is exploding. Or I feel like it's champagne bubbles all over my face. Like, I just can't wait to hear more. I'm getting (laughs) high off of this. So, you know, is there one that's more real than the other? I mean, who's to say? I mean, people use the word compersion to describe both experiences. So I think it's important to honor the diversity of meanings that people will attribute to that.
2: Yeah, Emily, I feel like that's such a deep question of what counts as a real emotion or not,
3: or yeah, a real I, I felt mean, experience. Everything's real, I guess. And, and, yeah, <laughs> Or maybe or nothing is
2: real. Maybe, maybe nothing maybe is maybe real. Maybe it's all, all in a simulation. simulation.
3: <laughs> yeah, totally.
2: So <laughs> I, actually, I do think that leads into an interesting question of, do you think that some people come pre-built more inclined towards the felt experience of compersion or do you think some people struggle their their way to it like do they learn it or do you think some people it's just oh it's a lost cause like you'll well lost cause is maybe too much of a value judgment but just like oh no you're just not built for it you're never going to feel it like what do you what have you found or or what do you think about that?
4: Yeah, it was it was really interesting because our participants spontaneously talked about that, um, even though it wasn't something huh. that we were probing for. And some participants said, you know, this is, I've always been this way, regardless of whether I like someone or don't like someone, I'm always get joy from their happiness or, you know, so it's, it's just something innate in me. Whereas other people really said, I worked hard at this. This was an intentional commitment to feel this. And so I think it's probably a little bit of both, you know, just like any skill, there's some skills that, you know, there's some people for whom that skill comes fairly easy. And there's other people who can be just as good eventually, but work at it. Right. And so there are probably some ways that people can develop their capacity for compersion, even if they're not feeling it currently, if they want to. I would hate to think there, there's anyone that's a lost cause, though. That would make me very right.
2: sad. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, so that opens up, I think, even a bigger question. So I do want to talk about, you know, yeah, those things that you can do to develop compersion or or maybe create groundwork for compersion. But before going there, it is the bigger question of, do we have to feel compersion? You know, is that a necessary experience? And I love so from from the text of your study, I pulled out this quote from one of the participants. You know, critiquing the experience of or the concept of compersion, right? And and the quote is: "It's nice when it happens, but I honestly think it's a little harder come by than some poly advocates would have you believe. It's not a sign of enlightenment; it's a sign of having lucked into an arrangement that really works." So yeah. let's just start there. Yeah,
4: I think that was another thing that our participants, many of the participants, said over and over again: is that this. Compersion is not necessary for successful polyamory. It's a bonus, it's lovely when it happens, but you know, it doesn't make you, it doesn't make or break you as as someone who practices polyamory, right? There I think there's ways in which when your partner is compersive, it can facilitate the metamore partner relationship. Right. So having a partner that feels compersion can make things just maybe a little bit easier, but it's certainly not necessary. Hmm.
0: So I just want to add, you know, we were talking about that between the more cognitive and the more embodied compersion, I think everyone would agree that the embodied intoxicating kind of compersion is not necessary to have a great relationship. But the more attitudinal, the more cognitive, the more like, you know, the positive orientation towards our partners or our relationships and the willingness to not sabotage our partner's relationships, that is a more fundamental conditioned to having great relationship satisfaction in a CNM context.
1: I just thought you need to take a moment for that to sink in, because to go back to Emily's question about, you know, is it real if it's all kind of intellectual rather than being felt? And from what you're saying, it's maybe the intellectual one is the more fundamental one than than having that strong feeling. It's But the most important thing, like you said, is that you at least have enough of this kind of mental I've decided that this is right and I want to support this and I don't want to sabotage it and I want my partner to be happy in their other relationships even if I'm not super stoked about it all the time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think I also latch onto that just because that's been my experience like I'm I'm envious of people who do feel that champagne bubbles on their face compersion I mean (laughs) (laughs) never heard that expressed before today but I love it it. (laughs) I've never felt that about anything right like I mean, maybe about a friend who finally had a success after a long time, kind of like I was mentioning. But in terms of polyamory and non-monogamy, I I don't, I'm not someone who experiences a ton of compersion yet at the same time have more of that. But I really believe in this and, you know, want my partner to have good, happy relationships. And I want my metamores to have good lives and to, you know, have success and things like that. Even if I'm not, you know, over the moon so turned on and excited knowing they're having sex mm-hmm. you know or or something like that or that they had this fantastic anniversary it's like cool sure cool <laughs> like you know happy for you but but also like whatever <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. I think that's also why that's important for me to hear of that mm-hmm. like yeah I'm not doing it wrong and I try to help encourage other people by telling them that too because people can get caught up on that idea if I'm not feeling it I'm failing somehow
0: Right, right. They can use the concept of compersion as a stick to beat themselves with, which is so Mm -hmm. not helpful. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yes.
3: But if you do want to go about developing more compersion in your life, what are some ways in which you can do that? So I think
4: some of the things that participants said that were kind of were particularly helpful was really truly listening with their partner's perspective in mind. And so rather than trying to hear things through their own worldview or their own lens, really listen to what their partner's saying and try to understand it from their partner's point of view fully. And so that can really facilitate compassion is understanding their perspective as their perspective. Also, other folks mentioned feeling non-attached to, to particular outcomes can be
1: helpful. In in what way? What was the context where that came up, the not being attached to certain outcomes? Like outcomes in your partner's relationship, in your own? What what specifically?
4: I don't think that person who who wrote non-attachment to outcome, the one that I can think of, didn't specify, but I think probably both. You know, what what you know, do you have a particular way that you think your relationship with your partner should be? Right? If you have Mm -hmm. a very rigid idea, then it's going to be harder to kind of go with the flow is as your relationship changes and as as their relationships with other people change, just kind of being more open. And that's another one is just having an open mindset. So some people, you know, it said, I have to do this very intentionally. I set this intention and then I, I work through it. But other people just said, just being open is enough for me.
2: Hmm. That's so interesting. Yeah. When I saw that in the study, that also stood out to me, that non-attachment to outcome. And it made me think of you know, I've definitely had this lived experience, and I've heard this from a lot of folks that, you know, sometimes you can be feeling super supportive and really compersive as long as your partner's relationship takes a particular shape, also, right? Where it's like, oh my God, I just so love that you have this comment partner. It's just like so wonderful and beautiful. But then over here, when, when, all oh, maybe suddenly you're escalating emotionally with another partner, then it's much harder to have compersion. And so I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I think that's a very common thing, but I know. In my own practice of non-monogamy, that's something that I have learned over the years that, you know, that if I have that experience where like all my compersion goes away when the format of my partner's relationship changes, often that means I I need to, I need to find something else to attach to for security outside of just the outcome of how this is going to go. So, so I think, yeah, that seems like that tracks with what seems to be a lot of people's experience there. It's all about releasing control. Yeah, super fun. I love releasing control. I love it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think something that would be really cool to see coming up in the research, and I'm not aware of any of this, and so tell me if you know if anyone's working on it, but doing research on any actual compersion interventions of, you know, Mm -hmm. are there actual, you know, practical tested steps to help foster more of that feeling or at least getting to that place of, we always describe it as neutral, but I guess kind of at least that sort of intellectual side of, well, I want them to be happy and I'm not going to sabotage it. Are, are you aware of anyone doing that kind of research or or, or do you have any coming up, a compersion intervention to, to research? <laughs>
4: I think that's the, you know, it's kind of a long-term goal would be to, you know, you do the basic, what we call basic research, where you just try to find out the factors that might be related to greater compersion. And then you translate that into applied research where you then try and take that research and make a change for someone. And so that would be that intervention. I think that would be fantastic. That kind of research can be tricky and hard to do, but I think that's always the, I, I, for me anyways, as a clinician, that's always the end goal.
1: Right. Have something that you can apply. Yeah, something practical mm-hmm. that makes sense.
0: It's important when we're trying to develop compersion to not be even attached to the outcome of <laughs> compersion looking a certain way the the factors that me and Sharon and and Dr. Michelle Vaughn laid out in this research can be just taken as a roadmap to relationship satisfaction and CNM more generally. And I think the other thing that promotes compersion, paradoxically, is to not necessarily like shoot for compersion. It's to use those factors that that we delineated in our research, you know, the individual factors, the relational factors the rapport that we have with our metamors to promote greater relationship satisfaction and to locate what the bottlenecks in that ecosystem of factors might be, and then to address those places when we can. And oftentimes, the compersion might just derive from that, will just kind of emerge from enhancing those contexts rather than trying to mm. force compersion into existence.
2: So something you mentioned a little bit earlier was about some of these things lead to just general better relationships. And so I'm curious to hear from the two of you, you know, do you think that it's still important to study compersion, look at compersion, think about compersion, even for people who are maybe, you know, those folks are like, well, I just don't feel it. Or, well, that's not really the type of non-monogamy that I practice. It's not that important. Or maybe I'm not non-monogamous. So why do I care about any of this? What, I mean, what do you think there is to glean from this research if you fall into those camps?
4: You know, I, like I said, I I don't think that is necessary to experience compersion and it shouldn't necessarily be a goal unless it is someone's goal. But I do think there might be some implications and, and relevance towards folks who are even monogamous, you know, so sometimes people in monogamous relationships may, you know, there may be some, some issue in their relationship that, Oh, my partner likes to sit in front of the TV for three hours on Sunday and watch football, right? And, you know, that's time that they're not interacting with me. I don't really like it. But, you know, maybe we could learn from compersion and, and apply some of the things that we have learned about how to facilitate compersion to that type of relationship. And and maybe if they have a conversation and that person feels more included, even not necessarily sitting there and watching football, but what do they like about football, why is this important to them to do? I think that the, we can learn a lot about relationships in general, regardless of whether folks are consensually non-monogamous or even want to experience compersion.
3: Well, thank you all so much. This has been a really, really interesting conversation and continuation kind of of what we did with Marie back in 2020. I, I was wondering also what's next in your research and what did you want to find out, you know, next from all of this compersion stuff?
0: <laughs> in, my, in my personal research, I want to work on those interventions.
2: Uh, yes. Yeah, nice. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um,
0: but I don't have a huge research agenda for the moment, so I'll let Sharon talk about hers. Right. Well, I think, you know, I'm going to finish working on this paper where, where I've quantitatively
4: tested the hypotheses that we derived from this qualitative study that we're talking about today. And so that'll be really interesting to see what aligns in a much larger sample and, you know, f- rather than people kind of talking about it, actually assessing using quantitative measures, I do think it'll be interesting to pursue some of that research on Envy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, right now we kind of have a holy holy grail of trying to get some funding to looking at kind of relationship development over time in couples, monogamous couples who are opening up and mm. see see what that looks like. We'll see if we wow. can get the funding for that.
2: Yeah, fascinating.
1: Thanks. Those are all fantastic topics. I, yeah. I also wanted to ask, as we're wrapping up here, about the compersion scale that you mentioned before that you developed specifically for some of this research you've been doing. Is that something that people can see? Is that published yet? Is that something they can go check out? You know what, What's the story there?
4: Yes, so it is published. Unfortunately, right now it's behind a paywall. So folks can email me at flicker f l i c k e r at c s u s dot edu. I'm happy to share it with them. What I also plan to do is to post it on my website. My lab website is not posted there yet, but that is that is a place that i can I can put it so that people can easily assess it or access it. That's
1: great because yeah for for any kind of research on interventions and measuring their success, a scale like that you know would be a really helpful way to kind of see that before and after and have some quantitative way to measure that absolutely and where can people follow both of you, where can they find out about this? I know that Marie, you mentioned whatiscompersion.com. They can get the full text of this particular paper that you're talking about. What, Where else can they find each of your work?
0: So yes, I mean, whatiscompersion.com is a website that I've built just as a trove of resources and papers and literature about Compersion. And there's a blog as well that's really readable and a great addition to the more formal academic literature literature and they can also find me on instagram it's love underscore insight underscore dating and then i post things about both mindful dating and relationships and compersion and non-monogamy
4: what about for you sure sure i am on twitter and it's at smplicker1 so s M is Mary, Flickr1. I also have a website. It's not an easy website address. So you can just Google me at Sharon Flickr at CSU Sacramento.
2: Excellent. Again, thank you so much, you two. And thank you for sharing your work with us. I'm really interested to see how our audience, what their audience thinks about all of this. And speaking of that, we're going to be posting a question on our Instagram stories this week. We want to hear from you. What makes it harder for you to feel compersion? really interested to hear all of your experiences. And for everyone else, the best place to share your thoughts on this episode with other listeners is in our episode discussion channel in our Discord server, or you can also post about it in our private Facebook group. You can get access to these groups and you can join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram multi is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Emily Matlack, and me, Dedeker Winston. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Bavanetta. This episode was researched by Dr. Kiana Nurse. Our production assistants are Rachel Schenowark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com.
0: It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash.